we must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Feel, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We're doing our best to break down the silos between healthcare providers and help our audience learn about what every discipline goes through uh, as far as their learning process um, and their schooling and really what we can learn from the education process of each different discipline on our journey to try to help move healthcare education in the right direction. Today, we have a very special guest on, Dr. Celine Parekh. Now, Celine's an orthopedic surgeon, um, but he also does some teaching at Duke University's orthopedic program as an associate professor and is an adjunct faculty member at Duke's Fuquay Business School. Uh, Celine, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show today. I know we kept your bio relatively brief, but is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you that we didn't mention in your bio? Yeah, I think the only thing is that uh, that's one of the many caps that I wear being a a professor at at Duke, uh, helping to run the division for foot and ankle. But uh, I've got an entrepreneurship bend where I'm really involved with uh, innovation, product development, and uh, teaching and training globally. Awesome. Well, I know I'm excited. You know, Celine, do you think you could kind of tell our listeners a little bit about your academic journey and kind of how it really shaped you and led to where you are today at this point? So I, I've, through my journey in education, even from high school, I've never taken the traditional path. Um, and, and so even in my becoming a surgeon or a physician, uh, it's been non-traditional in that um, while I was in the middle of medical school, there was a lot of mergers and acquisitions occurring between different health systems. And I had decided at that time that if I really wanted to be a player in, in medicine and not really be uh, a, what I call a victim or just a pawn of the system, I really should get my MBA and go to business school. And so in the middle of, uh, of, of medical school after my second year, I approached the dean of both the medical school as well as uh, the, the business school and said, is there a way that uh, I could do a combined MD-MBA program? Uh, they both were willing to, to uh, do a trial, uh, and so I stepped away from medical school for a year, went to the business school, and then went back to medical school um, and, and became the first of, of what now is a, uh, an established MTMBA program. And that has made the entire difference. You know, uh, medical school teaches you to kind of digest a lot of information and spit that back out, whereas business school teaches you to work in teams, digest information, and create your own solutions. And so these are two dichotomy, dichotomous paths, but together 
really work synergistically. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I find that to be a, an amazing combination. Uh, anybody that is in the medical field and goes into an MBA program uh, could be a weird combo, but it really works out most of the time. I think uh, people t- tend to learn a lot of really neat things from business school. Um, but Celine, you know, of all the avenues to choose in medicine, what specifically made you decide on pursuing orthopedic surgery? So I, I, when I was a really young child, five, six, seven years old, the Jarvik 7 heart transplants were, were occurring and really were groundbreaking. And so I always thought I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. But in high school, I got really involved in sports. and was very passionate about sports. I still knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, I didn't know anything about orthopedics at the time graduated from high school and my, and my brother who was just entering medical school said, Hey, you know, you really need to take a look at sports medicine where you can be an orthopedic surgeon. So you're still operating or working with athletes. And that set the seed to start the discovery path along uh, orthopedics. And, uh, and then I never looked back. It's been uh, uh, one of uh, probably the, the landmark decisions, obviously in my life for uh, pursuing uh, orthopedics. It's amazing, you know, the more I've even learned about all the different avenues, specialties, and niches that medical providers can go into. Um, I, didn't, I don't think I told you this, Lane, but my fiance is actually starting her second year of residency for general surgery at VCU here. And it's amazing how many different variations, even within that, there are that she's trying to figure out what she wants to do for specialty. So I think, to be honest, I think it's kind of overwhelming at times. It's like, oh, there's so many so many specialties and so many pros and cons depending on what you want and you got to get in those settings to find out what you really want and it's it's really overwhelming I think and I know I feel like that most people here really know what orthopedic surgeons do obviously but of course what are some of the other aspects of being an orthopedic surgeon that you think the vast majority of patients or other healthcare providers for that matter are really not aware of to better understand what you all the, the things that you guys do. So you're absolutely right, Brandon. I mean, there are what we call subspecialties within every single discipline of, of medicine. So within orthopedics, we all know about the sports docs. They get the glamour. They get to take care of the athletes. But it, it goes much deeper than that. So we have the what we call the adult reconstructive guys, the guys who do hip and knee replacements. You have the spine surgeons. You've got the, the trauma guys who to work on patients who've had traumas from a variety of different mechanisms. You've got the cancer guys, so the orthopedic oncologists who work with patients who develop cancer that has attacked or started from the bone. You've got the pediatric orthopedic surgeons, and then you have guys like myself who are foot and ankle surgeons where we do things, uh, surgeries ranging from uh, athletic injuries all the way to ankle replacements, which most people have never even heard of. Yeah, Celine, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I mean, you go through all this schooling, you do medical school, you become a doctor. Where did the NBA fit in all of that? I mean, what, you know, what made you pursue that avenue? Um, and, and how are you currently using your MBA? So, as I had indicated, you know, back when I was in medical school, fortunately, it was a dur- during a time where medicine was transforming. You no longer had these individual independent hospitals. And what you had instead were these individual uh, freestanding hospitals now joining forces to become health systems. And it was the beginning of the recognition for me that medicine was becoming more of a business. And so I thought that rather than just pursue my medical degree, it really would be helpful to get an MBA to learn about the business side of medicine that was emerging. 
And and like I was saying, it, I've never looked back. It, it has really uh, complemented the medical degree. Um, I fortunately, you know, in life there are times when you meet individuals that kind of swing your path. And I happened to, through my MBA, meet two individuals, both who were surgeon entrepreneurs who were very passionate about innovation. And they were both much older. One was in his 80s, and so he was way ahead of his time. And the other who was in his 50s and was a pioneer in, in urology. But what these both, both these individuals taught me was that being a surgeon, recognizing problems and finding solutions, which business school had taught me, was a phenomenally gratifying side of medicine. And I got the bug of entrepreneurship. And the MBA continues to foster that even to this day. So I'm heavily involved in entrepreneurship with product development, uh, with creation of, of ideas for solutions we just don't have in medicine yet in orthopedics. I think that's really interesting because I think, you know, hearing your perspective and kind of how the MBA shaped you and kind of helped nudge you in this direction that you are now and really help develop those unique set of skills that you kind of had just alluded to. Um, I've heard also a lot of people, I mean, from other, you probably, of course, know Seth Godin, who's done his alternate MBA program. And I know there's other prominent figures that say um, the MBA is not necessarily a requirement. They can do it on their own with this and this. And, you know, I'm just really curious, you know, just to kind of kind of look, explore the other side here. Do you think that more health providers need to consider an MBA or do they, or can they even do maybe some other developmental business paths, maybe outside of the MBA that are ultimately going to get them to the same place? So it's a complicated answer. It all depends on what are your goals, right? So if you decide, hey, I want to just learn about the business side of medicine, to be able to manage my personal finances and, or at least understand it, great. Pick up a bunch of books. You can figure that out on your own. You don't need an MBA. Same thing if you want to take more of a leadership role within a small practice, whether it's your own individual practice or with two or three folks. I think if you want to do anything more meaningful at a much higher level, an MBA formalizes the processes of, of thinking out of the box the processes of working in a team and, and, and being able to play nice in the sandbox. And these are skill sets that you never learn in medical school. Um, now, what I will also tell you is that back when I was doing my MBA, you had no other options. It was either an MBA or you just figure it out on your own. What has changed since then is that there are multiple programs that are certificate programs. So you're not getting an MBA, but you may spend six weeks getting a certificate on the nuts and bolts on, on business. And so those are on now alternatives that you didn't have back when I, I got my MBA. Yeah, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Now, uh, Celine, you know, you've done an amazing job of branding yourself. You know, you've got the fantasy doctor brand, which is really what drew me to doing, uh, you know, freelance writing and some guest blogs for you guys, um, as well as the podcast for the site, uh, for the NBA injuries. But, You've been featured on DraftKings. You've got the Tech Doctor brand. I mean, you're doing numerous interviews, TV spots, all of that on top of your ortho practice. How important is branding yourself as an expert clinician these days? And how would you uh, recommend that healthcare providers who have little to no schooling in this type of thing approach branding? I think it is absolutely critical nowadays to be able to brand yourself. Long gone are the days where you were a physician, not just a surgeon, but a physician who just managed your local community, right? With the advent of the internet, 
social media, every single individual on this can reach every other person on this planet to be able to potentially use these tools that we have to reach out and, and hopefully help other individuals from around the world. And so how do you do that? Well, for me as a surgeon, it's very easy because I can leverage a lot of the things that I do in my office and bring it to a, a, a public level um, and, and then follow those passions. So the public level is initially just started out as uh, making people aware of some of the options of, of different types of disease states that we're treating in orthopedic foot and ankle surgery. And then that evolved into my passion for sports medicine and then the fantasy doctors, my uh, passion for technology and the tech doctor. Um, but I do think that branding is very important and every single one of us should think of ourselves as a brand, just like an athlete does. There is value to what you bring to the table. And as you recognize that, you can start branding it. And I'm not necessarily saying monetize it, but at least branding it so that um, you have your own personality that is recognizable um, on all different media platforms. If that's something that you desire. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point because I think we're definitely seeing an emergence of that. And I think honestly, it's led to some great innovation and it's really led to finding a lot of different people that have different skill sets and different experiences that can perhaps look and solve a problem or contribute to solving a problem a different way. So I think that's very, very valuable. And, you know, to back up a little bit, going back to kind of the progression of medical of medical providers in general is, of course, after medical school, then comes the fun days of residency and fellowship. Do you think you kind of give, I know it's going to vary between the specialty and the program, and I realize there's a lot of other things here that are going to vary on this answer. Um, but do you think you could kind of just give our audience an overview of just how, in general, um, surgical residency and fellowship is structured overall? Yeah, so things have changed again um, from when I, I, I was doing it, and some would argue for the better. But uh, basically, you spend anywhere from four to six years doing a surgical residency in the specialty that you desire. For me, it was orthopedic surgery, surgery so I spent six years uh, training. During the time that I did it, there were no caps on the number of hours that you were doing weekly, so I was easily putting in 120-plus hours a week, falling asleep at the traffic lights on my way home from being on call. Not the healthiest thing to have happen, but the flip side is that you hit that 10,000 hours of expertise during your training. You trained yourself to be able to be up at all, all hours of the day and perform uh, at a very high level. Um, nowadays, we have the restricted work hours, and there's more of an emphasis on, on position quality of life, on your outside uh, interests, your activities, things like that. And, and I get that, but it also potentially unless you come up with creative ways for, for education, you will lose that 10,000 hour mark to, to develop an expertise. Yeah, that's a pretty good point, Celine. You know, I, I question that 10,000 hour mark uh, after reading the Cambridge handbook of expertise and expert practice. Uh, that's been a general rule for quite some time, but, but with really what it seems, it seems like with practice, uh, that is focused and with certain attention to deliberate practice, those hours can be dwindled down a little bit. So, so I, you know, if we can keep the safety uh, aspect for, for our residents and fellows in training, I, I think we can find other ways to get them some expertise practice in there. Um, but yeah, I think there, there are new patterns of education that are yeah. dropping those hours down to six and 8,000 hours. Yeah, and so, 
that innovation in education has to continue to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So from your perspective, kind of looking back at the process, what do you feel are some of the limitations or barriers of an orthopedic residency or fellowship program? Well, you know, one of the biggest barriers is how do you get that expertise, just like we were alluding to. And, and yes, six to 8,000 hours is kind of something that we're aiming to, but, but even still, we struggle to have the, the, the residents, the fellows, hitting those milestones. So a lot of what's happening at our university with our chairman is, is really um, competency-based learning. So basically what we're trying to do within orthopedic surgery as residents go through it, their training is have competency-based milestones so that once you're competent and get the check mark in one skill set, you're moving on to the next skill set. And so every resident is moving at a different pace, which is how learning occurs. Also, it does mean that you don't have to eventually be in a residency six years. If you happen to be a very skilled person who can learn much quicker, you may, and, and theoretically, you could finish residency in four years, or maybe you can finish it in eight years, depending on what kind of learning patterns you have. So that is something that is being looked at and explored in residency programs in the U.S. Duke Orthopedics. We happen to be at the forefront of it. Um, one of the other challenges for us as as teachers is trying to make sure that with the innovation of APPs, basically uh, outside providers that are helping our, our clinicians, our residents, such as the physician assistant programs, the athletic trainers, uh, the medical assistants, this, this area of medicine is exploding. And as it explodes, trying to figure out what things the physician gives up doing and what things they focus on is becoming more and more challenging. So for us, for example, our residents may not round as much as they did when I was training because you had no APPs. But now that you do, you have to figure out the division of labor and who does what. And the more important thing is how do you have seamless communication so that patient's safety does not, be, uh, does not get put at risk. So these are all challenges that are happening as education innovates. I think that's really important to gain some perspective on kind of what are the things that need to be addressed. And you mentioned kind of some things, including competency-based learning based on milestones throughout the resident's development or a period of time, and also maybe modifying the program length based on how that resident or fellow progresses through those milestones, kind of dictating the time that they need to go through that program, and also kind of triage teaching and kind of finding a better way to triage labor and time and making communication better. So I think those are some really, really good things. And I guess another question that I have as a follow-up to that are, what are some other things that you think we can, that can be done to improve, not even just, let's, let's take it a little bit more broader than just orthopedic surgery, residency, fellowship. What are some other solutions, apart from what you had just mentioned, that you think overall, across the boards, medical residency and fellowships need to start, start adopting? So I personally am a big proponent of learning about some core business skills that we just don't get addressed in medical school, in residency, or in fellowship. So half of what you do in medicine is delivering care. Well, the other half is learning how to manage your practice, how to market, how to read the profit and loss statements, how to bill, how to code. You never learn that anywhere along the way. You just kind of pick it up. But nobody formalizes that for you and makes sure you're doing it the right way. And so it's learning through trial and error, which is the most horrible way to learn. And so that is, to me, a very big area that is a deficiency in our, in our formalized medical education. 
So, yeah. Celine, you're, you're really in a unique situation uh, as an educator because you do some teaching at the orthopedic program uh, as an associate professor and as also as an adjunct faculty member at the business school there at Duke. So what would you say are some of the positive takeaways that you've seen from both the ortho program and the business school program? You know, one of the biggest things that I've enjoyed about being an educator is the you know, multiple things. Number one, it's the passion that I bring to the table. So getting the younger minds passionate about what you're passionate about, having them see the world through your eyes, I think is fantastic. Uh, young minds are like sponges. They're, for the most part, they just want to learn um, and see the, the excitement that you have. I think that's been refreshing to me. It keeps you in the game. keeps you sharp. More importantly to me is the curiosity these young minds have. And so when I'm in the clinic saying, seeing patients, when I'm in the operating room, when I'm talking to these business students and they have questions about why are we doing things a certain way? Why are we treating this patient non-surgically versus surgically? What other options can we have? Those questions plant seeds in your head and, and that's where your ideas come out of, right? And so I think that uh, I've learned as much from my students, I call them my trainees, as they have probably from me. And I think that has kept uh, my practice of orthopedics so invigorating. I think that's a really common answer that we've kind of heard as well throughout doing the podcast from other educators that they learn not only about the acts and the, and the method of teaching, but also just learning new stuff about the content. And really, when students ask questions, it helps them and maybe puts things in a different perspective to kind of look at things a different way and learn. So I think that's a very powerful point. So, you know, I've really learned and really enjoyed this discussion. I know it's been a relatively brief discussion because I know I'm sure we could each kind of talk a little bit more on a lot of these topics. But, you know, the question that we like to end with every single episode is this follow-up question. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, whether that be medical or surgery related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? Uh, I think the biggest thing that I would change is almost uh, going way back to medical school, the core of two years of just sitting in a classroom and, and the old school way of learning, which is take this material, learn it, memorize it, regurgitate it, and move on to the next topic. And we're already seeing some of that change already, but it needs to be more interactive, more purposeful, and in my opinion, more driven about the questions remaining and, and technologies and information that could potentially help you provide new solutions. Most medical students aren't at the point in their education yet to have those solutions, but to start planting those ideas and those seeds, to me, is, is critical because who knows what those bloom into later on. Yeah, that's a great answer, Celine. You know, I, I can't thank you enough for your time and for coming on the show today. Could you tell our audience where they can find you online and on social media if they have any follow-up questions or just want to chat with you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can fo follow me on my website at MD which is a hard name to spell. So it's S-E-L-E-N-E, -E, last name Parekh, P-A-R-E-K-H-M-D.com. Uh, that's also my Twitter handle at Seelan Parekh, M-D. Um, and you can't if you can't remember any of that, you can always get to me through the Fantasy Doctors. So if you just uh, look at the Fantasy Doctors, either through the website or Twitter handle, uh, we're constantly fielding questions and comments through that as well. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you again so much for your time and for your insight. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.